0: And I'm joined again uh, on this Memorial Day by my colleague, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arleigh Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for, Secu- uh, for Security and International Studies. Elliot, welcome on this rainy Memorial Day. It's going kind to of casting a bit of a damp pall over the parade later today.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I, you know, um, th- speaking of parades and holidays, I thought we sh- might begin by reflecting a little bit on Memorial Day. You know, it is—it's um, the day that commemorates our war dead. It, unfortunately, for a while, it seemed to be morphing into the holiday that celebrates the beginning of summer, and the, so it's barbecues and if there are parades. Well, parades tend to be joyous affairs. I think in recent years. You've seen more people going out to cemeteries and decorating graves with flags and so on. And I I do think it's appropriate to just pause and reflect. And um, I'd like to offer two thoughts. One is if people haven't had the opportunity, they really should try to visit some of the war cemeteries um, in the United States. Of course, Arlington Cemetery is overwhelming, I think 400,000 graves. Uh, But say if you go to uh, something like the cemetery at Antietam, which is actually still, I believe, operational. It has, it's mainly, obviously, the graves of Union soldiers. Uh, it's a very, very moving place, or the various places throughout Europe. Um, one in particular that I would mention is uh, Chateau Thierry, which is actually the largest war cemetery in Europe, uh, 14,000 graves, and it's all from World War I. And, you know, we, we think, uh, because of the movies and so on, a lot about World War II, but, you know, something like 100,000 Americans lost their lives in the First World War. And all of these gravesites, which are taken care of by the American Battlefields uh, Monuments Commission, are just, they're just beautiful and uh, haunting. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, if you, obviously most people can't do that uh, for one reason or another on Memorial Day. But I know in my family, we've begun to commemorate Memorial Day by just reading one of the many very powerful, war poems out there. And I'll just mention a a, a stanza from, uh, it's actually a a British author, Lawrence Binion, who wrote this during the first world war. And it's, uh, it's always used I think by friends of ours in uh, Britain and Australia and other Commonwealth countries on uh, uh, Armistice day usually, but really at any appropriate ceremony, it's called for the fallen by Lawrence Binion and the stanza goes like this. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years contem. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of Antietam. I mean, we live in the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area, where there are a number of important Civil War battlefields and and cemeteries. Um, And of course, Memorial Day began, if I... if uh, I'm, my memory serves correctly, uh, in the late 1860s, to remember the fallen during uh, our most bloody war, the one where we lost the most casualties of any, uh, which was the Civil War. I I know uh, as well, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention our colleague at the Bulwark, Will Selber, who's written a, a remarkable piece. It was posted a few days ago. I know I've uh, asked that it be circulated to all the all of my colleagues on the defense policy board. And I've sent it around to a lot of colleagues in the in the Department of Defense, which it's a a very moving tribute to some of the folks that uh, he lost while serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so important to remember those who've fallen in our most recent wars, as well as the ones uh, further back in memory.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, just to wrap this up, um, I, I think it's, it's like when you go to a house of mourning and you're not quite sure what to say. And I think in situations like that, you know, you, first you can use the words of others, uh, like the essay you just mentioned, or you know, war poetry by poets like Alan Seeger uh, and others. Uh, but it's also just about showing up. And I think showing up in those cemeteries, which really are hallowed ground. Um, It's the right thing to do. And it's, it's, um, it's a statement. Well, Eric, let's talk a bit about politics. Uh, Once again, it's uh, just you and me. Um, There was a momentous, I think it's fair to say, election in Turkey. And of course you were our ambassador to Turkey. You've continued to follow Turkish politics closely I think it's fair to say you're not the greatest friend of uh, Tayyip Erdogan. He seems to have won uh, in an election that I suppose one can characterize as clean, although that has to be qualified in a number of ways, which you might wish to do, by a relatively narrow margin, is my impression. It's like about 52% of the vote. So could you just um, first reflect a bit on the election and what it means? And then I, maybe I thought we could dive a little bit deeper into not just the future of Turkey, but the future perhaps of some of these other middle powers uh, that are out there. So let her rip.
0: Yeah, I think it is fair to say that I'm not in President Erdogan's good graces. Um, actually, uh, it is not just that I've uh, kept up a steady drum breed of criticism of the Erdogan regime and his policies uh, since um, leaving government, but also uh, when the WikiLeaks documents came out. The largest trove, of course, was from Baghdad, where private first class Chelsea Manning was situated. But the second largest trove came from Ankara because we were next door and we copied Baghdad on everything. And so uh, because... The ambassador's name goes on the bottom of every cable that comes out of the embassy. Uh, a lot of the telegrams that came out, including those speculating on reports we had from Turkish sources of Erdogan and the Erdogan's family's corruption, which has now become a major issue in Turkey. Uh, all of that came out, which led Erdogan to threaten to sue me in courts, either in Turkey or elsewhere for defaming him. And and since I take that very uh, seriously, since he has sent God knows how many journalists to jail for defaming him, I, I unfortunately have had to postpone, you know, taking a blue cruise uh, in Turkey with my wife indefinitely. So um, the election, you know, I put my money where my mouth was. I, you know, I think wrote in the dispatch on saturday morning that i anticipated erdogan would win and he won by about what i expected uh, about 52 percent he's never really done better than that in an election because turkey's a deeply deeply divided society and what i think the election tells you is that he has for all my distaste for him personally he is an extremely effective politician and in particular, he's an extremely effective uh, voice for a large proportion, you know, a bare majority, I would say of Turks who feel that they have been in the past looked down on by the Istanbul and Ankara government and business elites in Turkey. Uh, it's, you know, if you look at where the vote came from, it you know, his uh, vote overwhelmingly came from the Anatolian heartland, the Turkish equivalent of flyover country. And he is, you know, a, a tremendous tribune of sort of Islamo-nationalist populism. I mean, he's managed to fuse both political Islamism uh, with nationalism, with Turkish nationalism, and put a populist kind of uh, glaze on it. So, you know, like other politicians we know, he he constantly inveighing against globalist elites. But... It's striking that because Turkey is so deeply divided, he has to rely essentially on a base mobilization strategy. He has not been able to expand his uh, reach beyond that 52 percent, 51, 52 percent. He's never been higher than that, uh, either in parliamentary or presidential elections.
1: So let me ask you a question or a that first. That's that's very, very useful overview Uh, So first question is, in what sense was this a clean election? And in what sense was it not a clean election? Uh, And then the second kind of, I think, even more consequential question is, you know, to what extent is really Turkey en route to becoming a authoritarian state that will find it very difficult to come back to some sort of. Liberal Democrat or democratic norms, I should say. You know, once he passes from the scene, because he is, after all, mortal. A lot of Turks are very worried about that question,
0: Elliot, today, um, and are you know trying to parse it out themselves. On the question of the you know health of the Turkish uh, electoral process, I haven't seen actually the report from the election monitors. The the OSCE and uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe had a. Delegation that monitored the first round of elections and came out with a report, and although there were some irregularities in that first round and some in this round as well, you know, some places where election monitors were were tossed out of election, you know, polling places and some ballot boxes that seemed to have been, you know, corrupted by pre-filled in ballots and things like that. Nobody, certainly not the opposition, not the monitors, believes that it was on a scale that changed the result. And that's in keeping with a long tradition of, you know, essentially relatively free Turkish elections stretching back to 1950, when you had the first contested two-party election in Turkey. But whether it was fair or not is a wholly different subject. And there, the monitors two weeks ago pointed out that, uh, what has continued to be the case, the the media environment is thoroughly tilted in Erdogan's favor. One of the state-run broadcasters, you know, gave him in the run-up to the election 32 hours of coverage, and Kılıçdaroğlu, his opponent, had like 32 minutes. Which, to give you you know, a sense of the magnitude of of this, uh, in the in the last day or two before the runoff, uh, text messages from the opposition parties were blocked. So they couldn't get, you know, text messages out to voters. So, you know, there's no, there was no real fairness here. It's, you know, Erdogan has arrayed more and more power in his hands uh, as time has gone on. And he's been in power since, uh, for 20 years. And so he's now been in power, you uh, you know, several years longer than Ataturk. He's the longest ruling. Uh, leader in modern modern Turkish history. Uh, and because he has arrayed more and more power, it's become a very personalist regime. And so nothing really of consequence can be decided without his say-so. And as to whether Turkey can return to kind of more normal democratic processes, Turkey's always been what Dean Acheson called an imperfect democracy. Uh, there's always been uh you know sort of influence from the top uh during elections and not just under erdogan so never has it been as thorough uh as it has been under erdogan but you know he in his victory speech said you know uh i will be with you the turkish voters we will be together until i'm in the grave now technically this should be his last term in office but that doesn't sound like he's planning on going you know away anytime soon and leaving office in in five years now, how exactly he will manage that, whether he will try and pass the baton to his son-in-law, uh, the younger al-Bayrak, who is the entrepreneur behind the Bayraktar TD2 drone that's become so ubiquitous in, in Ukraine and now uh, elsewhere. It's been used uh, in Libya and in, in the Caucasus. Whether he will end up you know being the successor, whether Erdogan will try and you know stay on and pass you know amend the constitution, he could certainly try and do that, but um, I think a lot of Turks believe that this was their last best chance to stop him from essentially becoming a president for life, and we'll have to see whether you know as time goes on he's able to you know, maintain his position, he is going to be facing a major, major economic crisis in the days ahead. And that, that will be a real test for him.
1: Well, you know, I was going to say that one of the things that's so striking about this is that you you have an economy that's in terrible shape because of his policies. I mean, it's not an accident. And then you had that massive earthquake, uh, the response to which they, they botched and still he didn't, he didn't pay the penalty. Now, now to step back a bit, um, I I mean, one thought that occurs to me is, if you look at Erdogan, you look at Viktor Orban, I think there are other figures in the world. Uh, I mean, the, Israel is a, a democracy, but there's a little bit of this of this in BB2. These populist leaders who've been around for a long time, who invoke religion, who don't you know, overtly take down democratic institutions, but subvert them and corrupt them. Who are personally very corrupt? You know, where there's a lot of money that's sluicing into, you know, industry and so on. Um, you know, you could say that Putin was is the furthest example of this. You know, because there's again the same thing: there's criminality, there's the forms of democracy, there's deep corruption. There's the use of religion and of a kind of a state religion. I think as we step back, we have to think about, and and let's face it, there are echoes of that even in the United States. I mean, uh, I think uh, David French, who, who I actually would be very good to get on, you know, has written eloquently about Christian nationalism, which he doesn't view as particularly Christian. And I'm not a Christian, so I'm not in a position to judge, but it seems to me that he's right. So, wh- why do we think this is all happening now, and what do we think the trajectory of that is? Because it seems to me it's it's one of the larger unstated issues of our time. And of course, I, th- I I'll just say go a little bit beyond that and say I think one of our faults as a country looking at the world is we tend to compartmentalize. Say, okay, we got a hungry problem in uh you know getting the swedes in we have a turkey problem also in getting the swedes in but sort of other things we don't like but but we don't put it all together and here this does feel to me like a some sort of common development and i i particularly felt that when you you know you referred to anatolia's flyover country so political scientists refer to these kinds
0: of regimes as competitive authoritarian regimes or electoral authoritarian you know regimes that they and i suppose you know It's a a tribute to the notion that our friend Frank Fukuyama articulated a while back uh, when we discussed with him on the show. You know, there was this moment of triumph of democracy at the end of the Cold War. And it's interesting that these regimes all seem to feel that they've got to at least pay kind of ritual obeisance to the forms of democracy, if not democracy itself. And you end up with not rule of law. But because of the corruption and everything else that you were discussing, you get rule by law with, you know, opponents being jailed and, you know, et cetera. And there are, you're right, there are echoes here. While you were traveling, we had Paul Miller on uh, talking about his book about the rise of Christian nationalism, very worrisome. And Paul comes at it like David French as an evangelical Christian himself who who is troubled by, you know, what he sees going on in, in the name of of religion here and politics, you know, in the United States. Look, I'm not sure I have a great answer, you know, for why this is happening. It is a global phenomenon. Uh, I do think it is is happening globally. I think it's, in part, a, a reflection of a, a variety of trends that we see as a result of, of globalization uh, at the, you know, sort of tail end of, in the post-Cold War era, at the end of the 90s, the lowering of Trade barriers and other barriers. So a lot of this is caused by migration, and uh, the cultural backlash that migration has stimulated. You certainly see that in in uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary. Uh, it was a factor. You see it in Turkey. Big factor in Turkey. I mean, because of the Syrian refugee population. I mean, the irony of that, of course, is the policy in Syria that Erdogan followed was very personally associated with him, not a very popular policy, but he is responsible ultimately for some of what's happened in Syria and uh, now, you know, is talking about expelling the nearly 4 million, you know, refugees uh, on Turkish territory. Uh, I think it's also, you know, the unequal uh, distribution of gains from globalization uh you know there you know this is where populism comes in you know there's no question that globally elites in various countries have been the major beneficiaries of uh the you know run up of um incomes uh, as a result of of globalization not everybody's been a part of it and so there's an economic populist dimension to this as well and then there's another dimension which i don't think people talk about enough which is a kind of global reaction around the world to the increasing number of women uh, entering the workforce. And I think that, you know, that in many different cultures in a lot of different ways has uh, given rise to a backlash among, uh, among males who feel threatened by uh, having, you know, a woman to whom they might have to be, you know, answerable now in the in the workplace, and perhaps a spouse who's not at home all the time, taking care of their all their needs because they're in the workplace too. So, uh, I think uh, all of these factors, I think, contribute have contributed to this uh, phenomenon. But you're quite right; it's it's a global uh, phenomenon
1: and a troubling one. Yeah, I think, you know it seems to be it has what makes it so difficult is it has multiple. Roots, and you can tell me if I'm if it's inappropriate for me to apply these to Turkey as well. But one is, you know, in the United States we sometimes talk about the great sort, where you know people live with people who are kind of like them. And I, I was very struck when you look at that electoral map that you mentioned at the beginning. The Erdogan vote is, as you say, in this kind of the ru- semi-rural heartland. I mean, there are cities there too, like Konya, but you know, the more westernized elites in Istanbul it just That's not; it's it's a different play. So that's one thing. I I do wonder if there are two other things at work, though. Too one is, and and this is a fault of the elites, which you and I belong to, uh, everywhere. Not having fully understood the imperative of of not just tolerating, but in a certain measure supporting and even celebrating some traditional virtues and values, whether it's patriotism or you know, traditional forms of religious uh, belief and observance. And I think particularly in the United States, I, I have to say I do interpret a lot of some, I should say, some of the Trump movement to a kind of backlash against, you know, bi-coastal elite views, which are really just alien to people. But I think the other thing is the transformation of the nature of work. And one part of it is, as you say, the entrance of women into the workforce but i think there's just also been a change you know when my grandparents came and i dare say the uh, same is true for yours when when they came to this country you know with a strong back and a willing heart you could forge a life for yourself and actually a pretty good life and your kids could get ahead and they could have a better life than you could and you could you know because of public education stuff like that you could get them educated and you know they they would have a chance and i think that's just not the case. And there's nothing to be, at one level, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. I mean, the nature of modern modern manufacturing has turned into something like modern agriculture, more productive than ever. It just, you don't need as many human, nearly as many human beings. You can do it all with, uh, with machines or almost all with machines, but it does present a social set of challenges. And I have to say, you know, the worst part of this is I don't think there are any politicians out there who really particularly wrestle with this, you know, in a in a serious way. I'd, I'd like to ask just one more uh, Turkey, though, question before we move on to some other things. So, you know, I think I have heard you say that Turkey is an ally in name only, which is a pretty harsh statement. Um, I think in general, the expectation seems to be that, in return for a bunch of F-16s, they'll let the Swedes into NATO. Is that really the case, though? That Turkey is now a an ally in name only. And if that's the case, how should we think about that? What are the larger implications? Before I answer that,
0: let me just say
1: your earlier
0: comments are absolutely right about the a big sort and how it affects Turkey. When I was ambassador, uh, you know, I, I never got. Up to Istanbul as much as people in the business and media community who were, you know, basically up in Istanbul, not in the, you know, capital of the country. I would go up there though, and people would say, "What's what's happening in Turkey, Mr. Ambassador?" Because I was like, you know, it's it's very striking. You go across the, you know, the bridges over the Bosphorus, and it, you know, it says, you know, Asia on one side, and it's Europe on the other. And I think that, you know, it's a telling indicator of the kind of thing you're, you're talking about. So I think that's very accurate. Look, when I say that Turkey is a a ally in name only, um, you know, they are obviously, uh, you know, a signatory to the NATO treaty, but NATO is, you know, an alliance of nations, but it's also very explicitly an alliance of values. Now, it hasn't always lived up to that Portugal and Greece, were, you know, um, military dictatorships uh, or fascist dictatorship in the case of Portugal uh, for, uh, you know, periods of time, uh, you know, at the outset of the alliance. Uh, but, you know, particularly since the end of the Cold War, it's been very much an alliance of values. And as new members have come in, it's, it's been all about, uh, about values. It's one of the reasons why Hungary is such a problem and an outlier now. As it espouses illiberal, uh, you know, values, quite explicitly, and Erdogan, I think, because it's a very personalist regime, as I said, is inclined, I, I believe, to define the national interest as what's in his personal political interest. I mean, there's no Turkish interest being served by the blockade of Finland, which has now been lifted, or blockading Sweden from. You know entering nato i mean certainly there have been an effort to work out issues they could have you know been worked out before you know it, look erdogan told the finns and the swedes before they applied that he had no objection then suddenly after they applied suddenly he had an objection so what i think that means is turkey's very important country it will remain an important country because of its location you know, it's a Black Sea nation. It's an Eastern Mediterranean nation. It uh, sits right cheek by jowl with other countries who have had major fines of uh, gas in the um, undersea in the Eastern Med. So it, it Turkey's going to remain very important. The United States, I believe, is going to have to play a long game in the hope, as you say, that You know the actuarial table will come to our assistance at some point, and Erdogan will leave the scene. It's not one hundred percent clear to me that anybody else would be as talented as he has been in uh, exploiting the forces that you and I have been discussing. And I think what we have to do is, unfortunately, adopt a very transactional approach uh, to you know Erdogan because everything's going to have to be. You want this? What am I going to get for us doing it? You want F-16s? I mean, I, I think he's going to want a meeting with Biden uh, to, you know, be able to show the Turkish population that he's a, you know, world leader who gets to meet with Biden. Biden clearly has a big distaste for Erdogan; doesn't want to meet with him. He's going to probably have to suck it up and do it at Vilnius at the summit. But I think the answer ought to be, yeah, you know, once you've lifted your blockade on Sweden, then we can talk about a bilateral. They want you know they're gonna want some progress on f sixteens uh I think that makes sense in the because I mean we kicked them out of the f thirty five program because they bought the s four hundred Russian air defense missile. but I would much prefer Turkey to be flying fourth generation u s fighters fighters rather than buying Chinese or Russian fighters, uh, which will be the alternative if we don't provide them so i you know um we're not giving them something that will compromise our you know qualitative military advantages because of the F35's unique characteristics. So I think F16s make make sense although it's distasteful to have to do this kinds of transactional things with countries that are nominally allies.
1: Yeah. You know I think uh, you and I have talked a bit about the the need for what I'm going to refer to as the higher transactionalism in American foreign policy. Let me, let me um actually segue this discussion a little bit, if it's okay with you. So Henry Kissinger is turning 100 years old. He has turned 100 years old. He has turned 100 years old. You and I have read, actually read his academic works, A World Restored, uh, Bismarck, The White Revolutionary, which is actually a really interesting essay. Uh, A number of fascinating essays. These are from the 50s and 60s on American foreign policy, which really deserve a lot of attention. Is a truly extraordinary memoir, uh, White House Years, which I think is just you can't be absolutely sure of the veracity of every single last word, but it is a uh, but that's you never can in any memoir, but it's a it's a magnificent, magnificent, fascinating memoir. And on top of that, you and I both know him moderately well. We've uh, worked with him and the defense policy Board and other settings, and uh, I think it's fair to say we both have a cordial to warm relationship. With him now, the thing maybe to get the ball rolling. I mean, there do seem to be two different, very different ways in which Kissinger gets treated: either as this extraordinary sage, uh, you know, kept delivering pronouncements from a foreign policy Mount Olympus, or as a war criminal, uh, you know, duplicitous, conniving, underhanded. uh, You pick your adjective. And I think both of us would reject both of those views, since we don't always agree with him. But I think we have a have a do have a high regard for him. I'll maybe to get the ball rolling on this. I'll say that one of the things I think people miss about Kissinger is uh, or, well, two things maybe that they miss about him. one is deep seated patriotism, the kind of patriotism that only a refugee immigrant has. And which is really a critical part of his persona, that I think gets um, gets underplayed. And the the second thing is his sensitivity, uh, personal sensitivity. And the you know I'm I'm not dishing on any conversations I've had with him, but if you go look at White House years, there's a very poignant description of a meeting with a bunch of his fellow professors at uh, Harvard. I think this is during the Cambodia bombing. Um, and, you know, they, some of these have been the guys who got us into Vietnam for crying out loud. And they, he describes a meeting in which there were just a lot of kind of caustic remarks, lack of, and it's, it's clear that this left him deeply wounded and it shaped his decision not to return to Harvard, which he could have. And to give his papers to Yale. And to give his papers to Yale Indeed which is about as big an insult to Harvard as you can imagine. And um, and the thing that strikes me is having talked to him about the academic world, I mean, you know, he's occasionally made a few wry comments about my staying in it. It's clear that that episode, it's not that it wrangles, it, it left scars. And those scars are not fully healed even today. Yeah.
0: Oh, God, it's such a complicated topic. And I have such complicated feelings. But first henry's been nothing but gracious and uh, yes. extremely uh, nice to me personally uh, and i agree with you i mean i i don't know that i've ever met anybody all well, i've met a number of people in washington who can, are concerned about their reputation i'm not sure i've met anybody quite as concerned about it as he is and you're right there i think there are these sort of dueling kind of images of Henry and some people who have worked for him, who, you know, recently have come out, you know, excoriating him, which seems to me to be very bad form as, you know, as he, you know, is uh, essentially beginning to fade away. I have a lot more sympathy than I once did for the difficulties he faced trying to extricate the United States from Vietnam and i i think i agree with you that i find the you know the criticisms of people like uh, mcgeorge bundy the late mcgeorge bundy and others who got us in to vietnam you know uh, and then turned on on henry to be somewhat disreputable on the other hand he had the misfortune of serving you know one of the most paranoid presidents we've had i would have said most malicious but he's now been surpassed in that category. Yeah, no, he he, he lost that contest a while back. But it, look, I think it must have been really hard to you know work uh, inside the the Nixon White House, which suffered from all sorts of dysfunctions having to do with Nixon's personality
1: and and the people around him too. You know, I think it you know it's a White House is never just the president, and you know the 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 characters that. Uh, he brought in were themselves difficult, some of them duplicitous, scheming, yeah. backstabbing. yeah. Uh, and Kissinger was thrown into the mix of it. And, and I also, just to reinforce your point, as you think about the difficulty of extricating ourselves from that war and you know, people now view him talking about a decent interval as a sort of cynical, well, actually there was something to it. I mean, he was concerned about America's reputation he understood reputation as part of the currency of power. uh they're dealing with a horrific domestic circumstance I mean nothing like what say our boss George W. Bush faced during the Iraq war yeah. because of a draft uh, and a much higher casualty so i I'm with you I, I by the way, also just uh you know truth in advertising, I should also say he's he has also been nothing but gracious to me as well. To include blurbing my books so i'm i'm grateful to him for that
0: yeah i mean i do think you know that w- there are lots of things about which one can be you know critical about the nixon policies i mean i i am actually a huge admirer of secretary of defense melvin laird the late melvin laird Yeah, who i think was both one of the greatest secretaries of defense that we've had but also uh, in every way, uh, a match for Henry, um, which I think Henry, were he joining
1: us today, would uh, agree yeah. agree with. Yeah. He said he says as much in his uh, memoirs. Yeah, that, and it, you know, every time he thought he had closed a door, Laird came back in through another one.
0: And, and Laird was bound and determined to get the United States out of Vietnam, and press pressing constantly to uh, move forward with the Americanization of the war, and uh, or I'm sorry, the Vietnamization of the war and to pull Amer- the you know the de-Americanization of the war, which was, I think, ultimately correct uh, judgment on on his part. Um, one can, you know, criticize Henry and Nixon for some of the duplicity of the negotiations they were involved in. Although, you know, it's really hard to to be too critical, uh, given what we now know about the North Vietnamese, which is that they had no interest in negotiating at all. Zero. Uh, And that's been revealed from the North, you know, North Vietnamese records and the excellent work that a number of historians have done on that. I do think he and Nixon gave away too much to Mao and Zhou Enlai in 1972. And I do think some of our problems with Taiwan today are a result of, you know, not quite as, much attention to detail in the shanghai final communique from that summit uh, as there should have been in my humble estimation i mean i i I rely heavily for that judgment on margaret mcmillan's you know excellent book on the nixon mao summit but overall i agree with you i think henry was motivated mostly by um you know, a desire to preserve America's reputation and, you know, to, to get us out of a, a terrible war that was tearing the country apart. I think he also, by the way, I, I would be critical and we talked about about this a little bit in terms of detente with the Russians, which I think he grossly oversold to the American public, which then created all sorts of, of problems later because, uh, you know, the strategy that he and nixon had of entangling russia the soviet union in a web of uh interlocking trade and other agreements really did nothing to constrain soviet behavior around the world in fact it convinced the soviets i think that they were in the mid to late 70s kind of uh playing a winning a winning hand but again you know these are you know these are details as henry would say
1: yeah i I well, I think I mean, there is a larger issue which really goes to the heart of his conception of foreign policy, and and I think in a certain way, I haven't actually quite said it to him this bluntly, but I think I would say is, you know, where I, I think where one of the ways where I would part company with him is, he's actually not enough of a realist. I mean, he's uh, there is a somewhat romantic idea of great power politics. As you know, deals that are done by eminent statesmen at the top, and, and although the, there's a lot of attention to the, sort of the the deep historical currents underneath, uh, which uh, you know I think he's absolutely right to focus on, and which he can sometimes characterize just brilliantly. And again, I really would refer people to the the White House years because I just think it's a it's like a treatise in statesmanship. Um, but but still, it's, it's a somewhat romantic notion. So you know, he's. You don't have a sense he's actually looking there to really do the Russians in, or do the Chinese in, or just say, "Yeah, they're a gang of cutthroats and murderers. They'll come back at us once they've taken advantage of whatever it is we have to give them." And I think you know that helps account for you know his continued engagement with, uh, let's face it, with Putin and his whole series of Chinese leaders. You know not out of corrupt motives I don't think I, but I think because he he thinks that you know ultimately this is about you know serious people a, a favorite phrase of his having serious discussions coming to understandings you know and moving along and I think that's unfortunately for the world we live in that may not be hard edged enough
0: so a couple of uh, a couple of thoughts on on that uh Elliot. One is I think we tend to forget how young Henry was when he became National Security Advisor. He was nineteen he was forty-five in nineteen sixty eight, and he came to it without any previous job in government. Now he had been a consultant to the to the NSC, to Bundy in the Kennedy administration for a number of years. And of course, he was very close to Nelson Rockefeller and, and was involved in a number of commissions for the you know public good that Rockefeller had sponsored in the late 1950s as part of his i mean i part of it was partly do-gooderism but partly also uh, anticipating a potential you know Rockefeller presidency at some point in the future which in the late 1950s seemed very plausible and so i mean i think it's it's actually you know his his achievements you know are in some sense truly remarkable given the lack of experience that he had when he came in at 45 and all the other other factors that we have
1: discussed. There's several remarkable aspects of it. One is if you read the memo that he wrote to Nixon on the organization of the NSC staff, I remember when I first read it, uh, and I think actually I first read it carefully after I'd been in government, and I said to myself, how did somebody who had never actually served in government and had a sense of you know what things are like, how how did he come up with this? This brilliant piece of writing. The other thing which I give him enormous credit for, he had a great eye for talent. And he brought in people who would disagree with him. Now, he he wasn't easy to work for, apparently. I I wouldn't know. I wasn't there.
0: I've heard that on good authority from many people who did work for him.
1: But, you know, he had people who did not share his views. Uh, Some of whom broke with him very dramatically, some quite bitterly. Right. Uh, including Daniel Ellsberg, I believe, and uh, Morton Halpern. Tony Lake, Tony Lake, but but still, you know, there's something impressive about that. You know, it's uh, the old uh, saying goes. You know, first rate. Our, our old mentor, Brunson used you say first rate people hire first rate people, second rate people hire third rate people.
0: Right. No, there's no no question about that. Although I think he had seen a lot of the, in terms of the memo about organization of the national security. Process under President Nixon, he had seen, um, I think, a lot of negative example under the Kennedy administration of lack of process, right? Because the Kennedy uh, brothers basically undid the staff process that Eisenhower had created, and they weren't alone. A lot of critics were saying it was, you know, too re- too reactive, too stodgy, you know, et cetera. But I, I guess my biggest problem with Henry's kind of realism is you know I think it takes its root in his you know very brilliant study of the Congress of Vienna in you know 1814 15 and the world is no longer made up of multinational you know empires with monarchs who were related to you know one another in many ways and spoke a, a you know a Common language because everybody spoke French. You know, I, I mean, it's a brilliant book, and I think you know people have said that they think Metternich is the hero. When I read that book, I think Castlereagh is yeah, Castle is is really
1: the hero. By the way, it was his dissertation, PhD dissertation. I know. I know. Which is usually, I mean, yeah, I really don't want people reading my PhD dissertation. Mine
0: is, mine is, is now used as a booster seat for my grandchild. So, (laughs) so, so so I, so I, I, you know, I, I, I heartily concur. But, um, you know, the, the world, I mean, I think there's a real underestimation of two things, ideology, and how it affects perceptions of national interest and also the nature of regimes right so you know putin is not an ordinary statesman just as you know when ajp taylor said hitler was just an ordinary german statesman he was making a huge category error yeah because hitler was not an ordinary german statesman he was motivated by an ideology and in putin's case there's both an ideological and a criminal enterprise element of this. I mean, Russia's run like a criminal enterprise. Right. And I don't think you can negotiate inter- in internationally with those kinds of regimes in the same way that Castlereagh, Metternich, you know, uh, Alexander, um, Tsar Alexander and um, uh, Talleyrand negotiated, you know, about the future of Europe because they, they were just not the same... Common conceptions of legitimacy and uh, of how territorial disputes could be resolved through the principle of compensation, you know, which doesn't really apply anymore, uh, you know, to what we're dealing with in the twenty-first
1: century. So I, I'll uh, maybe to to wrap things up a bit. I I do want to mention two of his qualities, which I think. Uh, you know, whether one agrees or disagrees. And I think, I hope it's evident from this conversation that you and I do have a great deal of respect for him and uh, a certain degree of affection as well, I suppose. One is you have to be impressed by his endless curiosity and, you know, his continuing to write books, you know, at a well beyond the age where I, I intend to be putting pen to paper. And, you know, or look at this latest fascination with the implications of AI. Now, I'll confess I haven't read the book that he wrote with Eric Schmidt. I don't know whether it's any good. I don't know how to think about AI. Maybe we can get somebody on the show who can tell me how to think about AI. But, But you have to admire somebody who in his late 90s plunges in like that. The other thing is, I will confess, I am charmed by his sense of humor. And it's a... Now, so... It's used somewhat self-consciously, I think, uh, particularly self-deprecating humor. It usually is by prominent people when they, you know, it's a way of disarming people, but it's genuine. It's always been there. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, somebody who has that sort of sense of humor, it, whatever the size of their ego, whatever you agree or disagree with, it does indicate some sort of sense of proportion about how one views oneself Um, And, you know, I I give him a lot of credit for that because, let's face it, you and I both know plenty of humorless people in Washington.
0: Yes. And with egos that uh, require service with much uh, fewer accomplishments under their belt to justify it, I agree with that. I mean, I do think it's interesting that he seems to have revised some of his views about Putin and about the um, conflict in Ukraine. And I think that's to his credit.
1: Yeah, I think more than he has about China.
0: Yeah. And I I think, you know, there, therein lies, I think, a problem. You made the comment that you think his views on Putin and, and China are not for corrupt motives. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. But on the other hand, uh, he, because... He, you know, has gotten very wealthy as a result of his work at Kissinger Associates. I think it, it uh, has made it harder to disentangle that part uh, of, you know, his views on these subjects. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately that is, you know, a question historians, uh, I suppose, uh, Neil Ferguson, who is, you know, working on uh, the kind of authorized biography And has published one volume, we'll have to wrestle with, you know, as they, you know, complete uh, the story of his incredibly long and, you know, fascinating life.
1: Yeah. Realists, uh, of course, in theory, should think of states somewhat detached from individual personalities. I think once you've been in those positions, though, uh, there is an undeniable rush about being invited, as he used to be on an annual basis, to fly to Moscow in a private jet to have, just have dinner with, uh, Vladimir Putin or to, you know, whenever you want to visit China, you can be sure that you're going to meet with people at the absolute top. I think that's, uh, you wouldn't be human if that didn't go to your head somewhat. Um, but I, you know, I take that point. Well, he's an endlessly fascinating, complicated, uh, human being. You know, I will, there, there is a danger in that kind of
0: privileged communication with foreign. Language. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, I, I one example, you know, I, I got a call from uh, from Henry when I was under secretary of defense. Uh, to report on his meeting with President Putin uh, about a month or so after Secretary Gates and I had gone over there at President Bush's direction to talk to Putin about the decision President Bush made to put a missile defense system into Eastern Europe with a mid-course radar in the Czech Republic and interceptors in Poland, which was intended to deal with the looming and ongoing threat of Iranian ballistic missiles. And in it, in the conversation I had, Henry kind of recounted uh, Putin being very angry and agitated at the meeting in which he accused Secretary Gates of being rude and brusque and, you know, having dissed him. And it was 180 degrees, you know, out from the actual meeting in which Gates had been, you know, incredibly emollient emollient to uh, Putin. In fact, Putin had had to call the meeting short because uh, Yeltsin had passed and um he you know we the meeting was cut short by 44 minutes if there was anybody who was brusque or curt in that meeting it was it was putin and and gates had actually gone to the trouble of getting the memos we were working on with how we could cooperate with the russians on missile defense against a common threat from iran translated into russian so that you know putin would have it right in russian rather than a english non-paper in front of him maybe it was but but this is the kind of thing that putin and others are able to do because they know henry will have influence and a hearing and all 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 that so it's it's there's a lot of danger i think in in those kinds of uh privileged channels
1: of communications yeah i agree uh but still we wish him a belated happy birthday and uh you know, at this point, I get, well, there's an old Yiddish expression, bis hundut you know, maybe you live to 120 years, that may be a little bit of a challenge, but uh, getting to 100 is a pretty good deal. Uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I hope I can
0: emulate him. <laughs> well, I think that wraps it up for this episode of Shielded Republic. Elliot, thank you for for joining. We'll look forward to having you uh, report in from not Europe, but but vermont on uh, our next occasion and uh if you enjoyed this episode of shield of the republic please drop us a line at shield of the republic at gmail.com or leave a review for us on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from